Warning. This series has depictions of gendered violence and some coarse language. Please use your discretion when listening. This podcast is for educational purposes only and does not replace medical advice. Visit iloveyou.ca today and click through the show notes to find resources, citations, and learn more about the amazing guests you have already met in this series. I'm Laura, and this is I Love You. not a one-time occurrence we had for, for the, those, those statistics there was 87 percent of women who said that they were strangled on more than one occasion i think just the connections weren't made um yeah. between tbi about 10 years ago there was a woman who who was doing a lot of talks and the first helps tool and i kind of traced her down and called her and said you're the domestic violence tbi woman i want you to come to my conference and she's like i don't do that anymore and so there you know there was a wave of it that everything kind of touched her her webinars her posts like it was all all led back to one person and it, it didn't get picked up almost one in three women report um, experience after over the age of 15 report experiencing at least one you know one incident of, of physical or sexual violence in their lifetime episode 10 the road less traveled the research episode part two Here we end our series with the voices and work of three amazing women. I couldn't think of a better way to lead out than with their findings. Some of the only studies in the world conducted in the intersection of intimate partner violence and traumatic brain injury. I'm Laura, and this is I Love You. Um, My name is Neka McGregor, and I am the founder and executive director of the organization Women's Center for Social Justice, we're better known as Women at the Centre. We started looking, collating the data and looking at it. And Lynn said, um, have you looked for traumatic brain injury in science? And I said, nah, I, don't, I don't think there's any connection. She said, have a look, go back and have a look. So when we went back and had sort of this TBI lens um, gaze to the, the research, we were, I, honestly, I was shocked. I was utterly, utterly shocked because it was staring us in the face. But I guess you you don't know what you don't know. And until we knew about TBI and how it impacted or possibly could show up, we, we would not have thought to to look for it. But yeah, that was our aha moment. And it came about as a result of the conversation with Lynn Hogg and looking at the data. And I will share some more about the the data that we found that led us to conclude that there was traumatic brain injury amongst this population of women. Neko was shocked, and I was too, but to tell you the truth, I was actually a little bit more embarrassed. Having worked in brain injury for 14 years, having an entire family of social workers, some of whose work was in shelters, and having a family member who had likely head injury from intimate partner violence, I felt like I had missed something huge. This may be why I feel like highlighting research and education is key. 
If I didn't get it, then so many more people don't either. The research, it, it's called A Fresh Breath, examining the experiences of non-fatal strangulation amongst women abused by an intimate partner. And we started it in 2014 with funding that we received from Women's College Hospital, um, Women's Exchange. And uh, we devised a, a research protocol that would interview 15 women, uh, women identified survivors of intimate partner violence who had indicated that they'd experienced non-fatal strangulation at the hands of their intimate partner. So we conducted a series of one-on-one -on -one, um, interviews, ethics approved interviews with 15 women and asked them to pick one incident that they can re recall and then we asked a series of questions related to that one specific in incident. And uh, some of the key findings, uh, I just want to share with you some of our key findings. And the first one is really around language and how language matters and how critical it is that we do not call it choking, that we actually call it strangulation, call it what it is. It is not choking, it is strangulation. To choke some, to choke is, it, it involves like a, a foreign object, like a candy being stuck in your throat. Um, it's usually, it's accident, accidental. And it's usually something that you do to yourself, right? It's, it's, it's an accident. Mm -hmm. Strangle, however, is much more insidious. It's um, intentional. It is done by somebody else. Uh, it's an it's a physical act of um, applying sort of external pressure, external force to the neck, to the your neck area, and it cuts off the flow of oxygen either to the brain or away from the brain. And as I said, in the context of interpersonal violence, it is premeditated, it is deliberate, it is intentional, and it is done to instill terror in on the victim so for us it is important that we do not call it choking because choking tends to undermine undermine and minimize the gravity of what is actually being done to the woman mm -hmm. so language matters the second interesting uh, finding from the research was that the the strangulation that the woman described it wasn't just them, right, who who were in the room, as an example. In 50% of the of the cases, the women stated that their children had been present. Oh, NECA. Yeah, yeah. 50% had witnessed um, and had been present um, or had heard the assault. There was about, I think, around 30%, and we talked about my cat, for example, 30% of women talked about their cats, their, their cats or their dogs, their pets also being present and how from the, that instance, the impact on the pet was palpable. You could see the, for example, one woman talked about her cat who became petrified of men. Anytime a man would come to her house, wow. the cat would, would, would run. So the act of strangulation is not just between the, the perpetrator and the victim, and I hate the word victim, but in this context, it's, it's apt because it is a victim of the crime. 
it's not just between the perpetrator and the victim, but it also, you know, impacts children who witness it impacts pets. Another um, interesting finding is that there re really isn't one reason why the perpetrator would attack anything can set him off. Um, there, there is about 50% of the women identified what we termed acts of defiance in the sense that she she didn't want to, she said no to something that he wanted her to do. So mm -hmm. an act of defiance in one instance was a woman who had just given birth, um, had come home the day, given birth the day before, came home the following day, her husband wanted to have sex, she said no, oh. and so he proceeded to beat her and to strangle her. So acts of, of um, defiance. One woman, the baby was sleeping in another room, woke up, started crying. Uh, he, the, the husband told her to go and look, you know, get the, pick, look after the baby. She said she's been up all night, she's really tired, and asked him to go. So he kicked her out of bed, beat her up, and proceeded to strangle her. So 50% of women, um, acts of defiance. And then in 33% of the cases, it was separation. Like the anonymous survivor in episode three, who knew the risk to her life when she left, Stang can easily feel like the safer option in the face of his rising anxiety. A smart choice in the moment. This way, a woman knows what to expect. Leaving can come with too many unknown variables. Shedding light on some of the risk factors that escalates violence. Separation is a huge red flag that women who and this is really important because society says to women all the time, why don't you just leave? Mm -hmm. you know, why don't why don't you just leave? If you leave things, he, 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 he can't get at you. But the reality is that separation is an escalator of the violence and actually oftentimes leads to lethality, right? Because it's a time when he's he's fearing that his control over her is is going to be lost, right? If she leaves, then he can no longer control her so that the violence often escalates. So back to our research, in 30, 33% of the women identified separation as the precipitating factor for the strangulation episode that they were talking about. Then we also found that manual strangulation was the most common form. So using his hands uh, to strangle her as, a, as opposed to um, a ligature, as an example. Mm -hmm. And women described how you know, most of the times it was, it, I think it was actually all the time, all instances, it was manual strangulation where he was looking down at her as he was strangling her. And we, we conclude that that is the most, um, to him, the ultimate form of power because he literally has her, her, her life in his hands. And so as women were describing looking into the eyes of their partner as he strangled you know as he strangled her um which as i said it is like the, the ultimate kick for these men um these women oh. incurred multiple instances i mean you you basically asked them to pull out one yeah, exactly it's common for them to have many 
Oh, exactly. Um, and that was another finding that strangulation is not an isolated one-off occurrence. It, it's multiple times. One woman uh, said that if she started counting that she could remember at least 30, 33 instances in her uh, the time of her relationship, a oh couple of years, the years that she'd God. been with her. And, and why this, this particular finding is really important is that what we know is the impact, right? The adverse health consequences of strangulation is exponential. So you're strangled once, it causes damage. You're strangled twice, it's not twice as much damage. It could be like four times as much damage. You're strangled a third time, it, it could be you know, 16 times as much. It's an ex, it's it's an escalating increase in mm-hmm. uh, health adverse health impacts. So women who are strangled multiple times are, are prone to multiple and layered um, and sustained long-term injuries that, again, for many, it's undiagnosed. And global, because the, the starvation on the neuronal and axonal level is across the whole brain when it's exactly. starved of oxygen. Exactly, exactly. And... So yeah, it's not a one-time occurrence. We had, for, for the, those, those statistics, there was 87% of women who said that they were strangled on more than one occasion. On more than one occasion, possibly damaging neurons and losing brain function, compounding with each incident. What we know is that non-fatal strangulation is an important risk factor for homicide in women. Uh, in our study, 64% of women identified that they were strangled to the point where they lost consciousness and loss of consciousness we know is you're you are again at death's door it was a shock i think of it not that it was you know we found stuff that we didn't expect it was just shocking what we saw and it was not just to us as the organization doing the participatory research with our peers it was when we then went back to share the findings with the women that we had been working with and the shock that they experienced of you know learning all of this so it it, it made me very upset and made me very angry because again women are generally survivors are generally kept out of the loop right so yeah and as much as i love my colleagues in academia there are very very few who actively you know engage the survivors and want the survivors to be equal beneficiaries of whatever we find right understanding that i mind the information from these women i need to make sure that they are beneficiaries of it so for us in doing the work with by and for on the survivors it was critically important that whatever information we gathered was not just for the benefit of frontline workers who themselves would then go and help survivors but it would also be useful to women survivors um, um, ourselves my name is eve valera and i am assistant professor at harvard medical school and a research scientist at massachusetts general hospital Eve has a breadth of research, but one part of it is her focus on connectivity. That basically means how the regions of our brain relate or connect to other regions of our brain. 
She wanted to provide evidence that women were showing similar patterns of connectivity to those with known head injury. Historically, it hasn't been shocking. I mean, I mean historically, the, the idea is like, oh yeah, these women have cognitive problems, they have, you know, all these different issues and headaches and, you know, all this, you know, basically stuff that if you were to look at a list of post-concussive symptoms, they would be there. Um, but it's just been attributed to this, you know, psychological, you know, mm-hmm. stuff. Um, so that's probably one of the reasons why people don't really think, oh, these women are, you know, are like what's going on with these women. It's like, oh, you just misattribute it. Um, and so what, well, one of the things that I did in that first study was I actually looked at that. I said, well, can, can what we see here with respect to the relationship between cognitive functioning or psychological functioning, can that be accounted for, be accounted for by the abuse severity? And it couldn't. You controlled for it statistically, and there was still the relationship there between the brain injury score and these other variables, which was really powerful and telling. Eve wanted to tease apart the issue between psychological functioning and cognitive function, wanting essentially to show that brain injury was at play, not just psychological trauma. Using neuroimaging to look at functional and structural connectivity within the brain and see how that related to the, the brain injuries that the women had sustained. That's a reason why we want to focus, that's why we spend time looking at functional structural connectivity because you know, the connectivity is part of what makes those networks function as they should. Functional connectivity is just basically two brain regions that aren't ne- necessarily next to, to each other that are sort of acting, you know, they're behaving at the same rate, okay? And so we say, okay, we can look at them a certain way and say, okay, they're working together. Eve drew on another study that compared an injured and an uninjured brain. It showed evidence that the injured brain had decreased connectivity in the areas that they would expect it. Eve used these findings to compare women who had sustained a brain injury from violence. And so what we did was we looked to see if we could see that same sort of type of decreased interaction um, in the women who, in the women in our study. So we looked at the number of brain injuries that the women had sustained and looked to see if it was related to the interactions between these two networks. And we found that it was. So mm-hmm. the less those two, the, the more brain injuries a woman had, the less positively those two networks interacted with one another. You could say, well, well, does that really mean much? But then here's the part that is, I think, really um, important to know, too, is that the less positively those two brain regions worked with one another, the, 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 the more difficulty a woman was likely to have remembering a list of words. So essentially, again, Eve is trying to ensure that a woman's head injury is not misattributed to psychological problems, but can be found and replicated using imaging and compared using other known brain injuries as baselines. Um, It also is more likely to keep them trapped sometimes in a relationship like that where they're just very vulnerable. They've been told they're not smart, they're not bright, and then their actions, you know, their, their behaviors almost reinforce what an abuser is telling them. You're taking the words out of my mouth. No. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and again, we, you know, this, you know, the stuff that, that you're saying and the stuff, and, and I say that too, I mean, that's not like scientifically proven. No, no. You know, 
but but think you know but when you think about it i mean it seems like you know certainly i mean if you're in a relationship where you're sustaining brain injuries and you're it's incredibly difficult to get out of some of these relationships right for a lot of reasons which we could talk for an hour about alone yeah um but then if you want to try to navigate how to get out of that relationship safely and you're going to try to do that you know normally if you have quote quote unquote if you haven't sustained any brain injuries it would be a challenge anyway and then you put this on top of that sure I mean, do do I think that that's going to make that harder for them to get out of it? Absolutely. I mean, I mean that's my theory. That's my hypothesis. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's no reason I think that's not the case. But but again, we know very you know we, we haven't studied this enough to know. Having just secured some more funding, Eve is trying with all the resources she can to make the bigger picture clearer. What my research here is trying to do is build a picture to say, okay, you know, for people who don't want to believe that, you know, anything is really going on here, we have, you know, cognitive, we have data that there's a relationship between cognitive functioning, psychological functioning, these brain injuries, and now we also show a relationship between women's structural and functional connectivity mm-hmm. and these brain injuries. And so this is a very small amount of research and it's already showing you know, evidence that's very similar to what you might see if you were to look at, lo and behold, you know, you know <laughs> athletes. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's no reason to think that women are going to be faring any better than these athletes. And in fact, one of the things that I think is really sad is that in terms of prognostic, you know, indicators in terms of recovery after a TBI, the women that um, I would see in my study are typically all on the negative end of that um, because you know what's good for what's you know ha- what's you know if you want to recover well from a concussion or TBI first you have the immediate um, treatment what do you do initially well most of these women don't necessarily do anything they, they, mm-hmm. they, they just keep going. They don't get any, any medical attention whatsoever. And then if you have other bodily injuries, um, that's going to sort of take resources away from your body's ability to heal the brain injury as well. And as women obviously may have a broken hand or some, some other bodily injury. And then if you have acute stress, psychological stress or you know, chronic stress, any, any type of level of stress, and these women typically have it all, of course, they're going to have you know, acute stress from getting hit or abused and then uh, living in a relationship that's stressful that's going to be a more long-term mm-hmm. stress um, and so those things are going to make it harder to recover as well as well as potentially depression and anxiety um, and then the little evidence we have in terms of you know whether males or females um, are worse off in terms of concussions and brain injuries the a lot of the evidence that I'll, well some of the evidence, I think, points to the fact that women tend to re- take longer yeah. to recover. Um, so really, if you put it all together, women, the, the deck's really stacked against a woman recovering quickly and more optimally, especially if she's one of the women who is receiving repetitive brain injuries, which are certainly potentially happening long before the previous brain injury has recovered.
I'd like to introduce you to Catherine. My name is Catherine Snedeker. I'm an LCSW, which is a licensed clinical social worker. I am the CEO and the founder of a nonprofit charity based in the United States called Pink Concussions. Catherine is a super connector. Her summits and task force are bringing a community of survivors, physicians, and researchers together on this front. And she's been at it for a while. In 2015, when I was trying to explain to different large institutions that I wanted to have this summit, you know, and I went to the Mayo Clinic and I went to NYU and I went to all these different places, you know, and there and I'm like, it's sports, domestic violence and military service. And they're like, oh, what? And even the group that I did, even Georgetown, that the one I did it with, with the, I knew the dean, you know, people under him were like, uh, you should pick one. I'm like, no, I'm not picking one. I'm doing all three silos mixed together. And I, at one point, stood up to a male MD and said, I'm going to walk. If I can't do domestic violence, I'm walking. You know, and he's like, just do sports. A pivotal moment where she refused to back down to pressure, refusing to abandon intimate partner violence, understanding its importance in the world of concussion. That, you know, n nobody was doing the mix. You were either a sports concussion person, you know, there's everybody was in their silos. I was the first organization that mixed the two of those. Even the, and I'm surprised, you know, it, we've had seven summits right now where, you know, military and civilian uh, cross sections. The military was working with the NFL, but, you know, the cross section between military and civilian. You know, it was, and that's the, the beautiful thing, you know, if you know, I get hit by a bus tomorrow and like just gone the way out thinking of things I accomplished, the people that have met at my events over a cup of coffee, that's what mm -hmm. makes me the most proud. That that space was created where people could talk and, 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 and develop, you know, really strong alliances where they wouldn't have normally met. We're all in the infancy of, of understanding this, um, which uh, that's the part about brain injury that I find so exciting is that, you know, a lot of the theories have been thrown out and they're starting, you know, building up from ground zero. We, they just um, did work. Um, Doug Smith um, at Penn did some great work, put a paper out on um, male versus female. And if you look at the axon, if you look really at the nano cell level, that the female axons are more slender. Um, I don't like using smaller, I like slender, but slender yes. and there are fewer yeah. of them than, so if you can imagine a cable, you know, they're fewer threads and they're less strong than the male. And so that was one of the reasons that he was seeing that, one of his hypotheses that maybe women have a harder time recovering feel these worse and have more some more intense experiences and i've been waiting for that i mean it's been years where i've heard people you know women aren't as strong or women are more emotional or you know I, i've been waiting for the picture because i knew once we got imagery would be the best reason to 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 you know show that these differences really do exist and they're not not just psychological 
I asked all the researchers why they thought early research in intimate partner violence and traumatic brain injury just stagnated. Paul Van Donkelaar and Karen Mason discussed why a population that doesn't report and other confounding factors make it a challenging area of study, but not impossible. When I asked Catherine from Pink Concussions on the prevalence of studies on men, she shed a major light on one factor in the lack of studies. For female rats that cycle every six days, if you get injured when your progesterone is high in the second part of the menstrual cycle, if you get hit in that phase or the injury is given to the mouse in that phase when the progesterone is high, they'll have a poorer outcome. Um, Mm. Women um, in studies that have had birth control that artificially keep the progesterone high have better outcomes. So, you know, the, the, Clearly, in the, the the early work in the 50s and the 60s, they saw in that the the female lab animals were throwing off the results. So, you now that's mm-hmm. messy. Um, so, throw out the female. You know that that was you know the the best way to get rid of that road that you know roadblock or the barrier that was you know the speed bump. Let's say it's a speed bump because mm-hmm. you know it's hard to control for that. So they just got rid of the female animals. Catherine said in our conversation that she feels what she was doing is relatively easy with pink concussions. Not that the work is easy, but she knows her summits and conferences are a simple way of helping create connections for a group that needs to hear it the most, physicians and researchers. It doesn't take seven days, you know, at a conference to get this, you know, like literally in, you know, two hours, an hour, the light bulb turns on and then everyone's like looking at each other's light bulbs. And by lunch, you know, you've made a new best friend. And then they're (laughs) by, you know, by four o'clock, everyone's got a new research partner. So what I do is pretty easy. I don't need to build hospitals. You know, I just it's very easy. You know, and I get I we always make sure if the event isn't free that we at least have, you know, young researcher, you know, student kind of thing. I mean, for every, you know, Ph.D. candidate that I can get to one of our events, you know, I've bought myself 40 or 50 years of the kind of research I want to see. Well, and everyone's saying this is fascinating. I'm domestic violence side. I want to learn more about TBI and TBI people saying we want to learn more. So we put on a number of conferences in 2018, but really didn't have the reach. So we started this task force call with the six of us and we just put it out there on Twitter and Facebook, just on Twitter. And last year, so we our first call was in January and we did a call, I think, almost every month. I think we got 10 calls in last year and the last Tuesday of the month at two. And now we're 140 people across seven countries. After slugging away and starting to see some traction, Catherine has her eyes on what she sees as the top goal for female concussions. Really, the the push is we really want um, protocols based on being a woman. Like, you are a woman... Um, you, you know, you identify as a woman, you're taking the sex hormones of a woman, you know, whatever, you know, whatever, uh, you know, LBGTQ, I identify with a woman, you know, that in yeah. that space, that protocols take that into consideration. You know, this is your third concussion, you're a woman, you weren't on birth control for this, let's, you know, let your recovery run a different way. Um, than if you were a man. And that's, doctors aren't ready for that yet and they haven't really studied that, but I, that's that's kind of my next thing to push. Right 
From warning signs to research, from the courthouse to policy, thanks for joining us in this very important season. You may remember way back in episode one where I mentioned that I wasn't sure whether to release this season in the middle of a global pandemic. I met a woman through my work during the COVID-19 outbreak who had endured 10 years in a violent partnership. She would be discharged and be in isolation with her abuser. We all need the reminder of what these women face. They are in isolation in a pressure cooker of stress. Domestic violence calls have been up a reported 300% in the past four weeks. To Lynn Hogg, Nekka McGregor, Paul Van Donkelaar, and Karen Mason, Catherine Sneedecker, Dr. Eve Valera, Jeff Singh, Candace Stretch, and Isabel, your voices, conviction, and passion made this series absolutely compelling. So thank you. To our lived experience experts, your declarations, though painful, are here to be a beacon to others, to inspire and be a legacy. Infinite thanks to you. For my kids, without whom the season probably would have been released about three months earlier. Now that was a burn. To my husband who rescued all the episodes and my operating system when it decided to die. You are perfect. Don't let it go to your head. What else can I say? Share this. If you work in a shelter, a police precinct, family law offices, social work education, support groups, make this mandatory listening. And now to end with a poem that I have had on my mind for the whole series. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. I'm Laura, and this is I Lobe You.